Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 83, the Cody CC episode of Back oh, to yeah, Excited. Oh yeah, this one's going to be bad. <laughs> and we're going to, it's going to go 200 seconds longer for literally no reason at all. <laughs> also, we're going to promote this podcast as much as possible. This is going to be the first podcast we tell everyone to listen to, um, uh-huh. even though it's just going to be kind of meh. Anyways, um, <laughs> joining me as always, you've heard him already, my colleague from PensionPanPuppets.com, Acting the Fooliman. Hi, everybody. Um, we're off to a great start. Oh, yeah, rip-roaring. Uh, yeah, so the Leafs have played three more games in the Sheldon Keefe era since we last spoke. Uh, they played Detroit on Wednesday, and they clobbered them. It was 6 nothing, and the score probably flattered the effort that Detroit was putting in. Uh, the only reason it wasn't worse was Jonathan Bernier fought heroically through what sounds like a pretty vicious stomach flu uh, to put up 925 on 40 shots against in a relief performance. Yeah. You know who else fought heroically throughout their life? <laughs> Nelson Mandela. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, unfortunately for Jonathan Bernier, literally forever, that will be one of the first things that people think of when they mention his name. Uh but Nelson Mandela is an inspiration to us all. Jonathan Bernier is an inspiration to sick and slightly ignorant but well-intentioned goaltenders. And that was how that one went. But Detroit sucks. And so blowing out Detroit while encouraging and, frankly, a good time only means so much. And there's then we a, had a back-to-back. There's only so much yeah. you can learn from that. Yeah. Uh, I, I will also say I don't normally like to read in this team gave up, but that team gave up. I recap <laughs> that game. And I was watching, and it was remarkable how little they tried in the last two periods. They had one terrific scoring chance for Robbie Fabry, and Anderson robbed him. And it was like 5 nothing by that point. And then finally they were just like, all right, fuck it. And they mailed it in hard. So the score effects that you would expect to kick in uh, to some extent at 6 nothing because, you know, the winning team is taking their foot off the gas a bit. The other team is kind of charging ahead. That didn't happen at all. The Leafs actually just bore down on them. And frankly, it was remarkable it wasn't worse, just given the level of effort that Detroit had. So anyway, lots of fun for us though. And then we had a back-to-back against Buffalo. One game yesterday, weirdly in the afternoon, and one game, sorry, one game on Friday in the afternoon. I'm still living in the past. And then one game on Saturday, i.e. last night. The Leafs lost the first one, 6-4. They won the second one, 2-1 in overtime. You probably mostly know that. So, here we are. Uh, the Buffalo games were not as much fun as the Detroit games, would you say? Uh, yeah, I would I would agree with that. I mean, mm-hmm. we got a bit of stick last week in our in our podcast with Katya, which per, I think we both thought was one of our best podcasts because Katya is incredibly astute and is a mm-hmm. great guest. Um, but we got some stick for not being overwhelmingly positive about Keith. And that's understandable given the results at the time. But this is why, because, you know, we have to wait for a bit more time and to, to really get a sense of what he's going to do and how the team is going to respond. And the games against Buffalo, um, you could say the Leafs kind of reverted to form, by, by which I mean they, they looked a lot like they did under Mike Babcock in that they mm. often had good territorial um, advantage over their opponent, but they weren't really generating the same level of uh, offense that we had come to expect over the previous years. And then defensively, they're just still an absolute tire fire. Now, we could still see kind of the, the changes that Keith implemented 
and broadcast are pointing out the, the obvious ones, right? Where the, the circle back instead of dumping it in, which I, I think is a good change. Um, the forward popping out high um, to provide an outlet to defensemen to get, basically give them an option besides firing it at 35 shin pads uh, mm-hmm. to get it on net. So those things have been there, but in the last two games, um, the Leafs at 5-on-5 five five didn't really get the better of Buffalo. And, I mean, just as we said, you know, the previous three results were encouraging and not necessarily indicative of, oh, we're the best team in the world now. Doing poorly against Buffalo is discouraging, but not necessarily, oh, we suck, fire everyone. So, you know, you got to keep it measured. But it's not ideal because Buffalo, to use a technical term, is ass. <laughs> We have to say, now we have dunked on Buffalo a lot on this podcast. Uh, for a long time, we had a recurring feature, mocking Rasmus Ristolainen. And I actually don't have a lot to revise in terms of that opinion, but Rasmus Ristolainen did score on us last night. And it was the result of some extremely dubious defense on the part of the Riley CC pairing and the John Tavares line. Um, I think, you know, Buffalo is better than complete ass at this point, but they're not great. They're not a genuine contending team, and the Leafs, at least before this whole skid skewed our perspectives again, had aspirations of really contending. And so by that standard, it is a little disappointing. It's four wins in five games, which is good. And I will actually say, in terms of what he's done to begin making changes, I think Sheldon Kiefer has made a lot of good decisions. And it's been a pretty creditable couple of weeks for him. You know, I, I think the uh, Mikhaev-Tavares-Hyman line has been a really inspired combination. They seem to suit each other much better than what was happening before. Uh, some of this was just John Tavares is better than he looked previously, and now he's kind of regressing in a positive direction. But I think that they look good. They look empowered. Uh, Zach Hyman's stats in every respect are quite excellent, which is a good proxy for how that line changed when he came back. So I, I think that that's good. It's just the whole big picture is we kind of scuffled against Buffalo. Like we were probably lucky to win one of the two games. You could say that we were a bit unlucky uh, to do as badly as we did in the first one. And it was partly a product of awful backup goaltending, but that's a real problem that we need to fix. So yeah, it, very I mean, much at, a mixed bag at this point, there. awful backup goaltending is just part of the Leafs, right? Like, we don't have backup goaltending talent. And, you know, we I think you and I had been kind of flippant previously about, okay, I mean, we don't care too much about the backup because it, they might cost you a couple wins here and there, but you'll make it to the playoffs, and then at that point they'd stop mattering. Well, the Leafs have dug themselves such a hole that they no longer really have that luxury. Where, yeah, you and know, you, like, you can't survive getting zero points. Yes. Out of all the games your backup starts. And we have one loser point in the, I believe, seven games that we've given to backups. Seven or eight. And so, that's bad. That's a lot to leave on the table. There's no getting around that. Uh, even Garrett Sparks. You know, and I did remark on this at the time. But, like, as unimpressive as he was, we still came kind of close to winning about half the games that he started. And that's kind of what you need out of your backup. And we're not getting it. And it's a real problem. Yeah. So that's something that we're going to have to fight uphill against. And Katya wrote an article um, discussing, I guess, a couple 
a couple backup options around the league. And, I mean, the thing is, the tricky thing is, one, the Leafs are, if they do acquire a backup goalie, they're very much uh, dealing from a position of weakness, right? So a team is mm-hmm. going to try and extort us for a backup goalie and, you know, charge us more than they are worth. And really, a backup goalie should not be worth very much because of the second point. Even if you get a backup goalie who is, quote-unquote, good, and let's say we know that to be true, even though that's kind of impossible to know for a fact um, with most backups— there's a very good chance that you're just going to roll snake eyes with the, with them when they play because they're only going to play 10, 15, 20 times, right? If you just get stinkers in a few of those, that sewers your numbers. And it's it's super, super high variance because goalies are high variance in general and the worst goalies are even more so, right? Mm-hmm. One of the benefits of Freddie Anderson is that, you know, year in, year out, he's going to be an above average goaltender, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, he has his ups and downs throughout the season, but you can be relatively confident that, over the course of six months, he's going to help you more than most goaltenders would. No such assurances really exist with the backup goaltending. So the Leafs are in a, in a tricky spot there, and I guess you can you can blame Dubas to some extent for how that's turned out. I, I think, you know, we covered this before, but I think he made a lot of reasonable at-the-time decisions that have just not really turned out well. Mm-hmm. And, and that's just kind of something you have to live with you can say uh and Katja has a, a good thing about the backup goalies one kind of surveying some of the market options and my god is that a limited market there's <laughs> just not a ton available and our hands are really tied by our cap space concerns but other than that you can say okay he should have had more of a backup plan like you have to adjust when it looks like it's not going your way. And I don't know how much rope you're supposed to give Michael Hutchinson. I think he's at the end of it, however much it is. He seems like a terrific guy. His goaltending this year has been abysmal. It's it's indefensively bad. And as much as you can say the team has not played well in front of him, and they haven't, you can't afford to be giving up four-plus goals every single time your backup starts a game. This is actually... Well, we're on the topic, and I'm kind of ranting here. There is a weird tendency, and I don't know if this is held over from people who come up playing hockey, where one of the first rules of locker room etiquette is you don't blame the goalie ever. Like you always say, okay, we didn't help him out enough, we don't do this and that. But there's this weird tendency to, like, frame by frame, zap Bruder footage break down every single goal against, and say, he really couldn't have saved that one. And... If you do that enough, you get very good at explaining away every single goal, and it turns every five or six goal against performance into an actually totally reasonable achievement by a guy who's a heroic in the face of overwhelming odds. You have to save good chances in the NHL. That's just it. And there are some goals that are genuinely unsavable. The third one against in Buffalo in the first game was a short-range tip. No one's going to stop that. Or if they do, it's luck. But... You have to make some saves, and Hutchinson can't do it. He hasn't done it, and I don't think that there should be any room to absolve him at this point in terms of his actual play. Like, I want a different backup goalie the next time we have a back-to-back, which is unfortunately quite soon. Yeah, it's Wednesday. Yeah, so (laughs) over to you, Kyle. Um, Yeah, it's very frustrating. Mm -hmm. So, I mean... That that's just part of the part of the deal with the Leafs now. Um, 
unless Dubas pulls a rabbit out of his hat and manages to acquire a backup goalie, or we, we get lucky with some dude going on a hot run. I, I don't have a ton of faith in Kaskasuo to do that, mm-hmm. but who knows? Um, goalies are, you know, inherently very volatile. So it's always a possibility. Mm-hmm. On the, I guess, on the skating, skaters side, we, we kind of alluded to the fact that the performances against Buffalo were not ideal, particularly at 5-on-5, five five, and a big portion of that was kind of the offense reverting to its 2019-2020 form, right? Where they weren't getting in, uh, they weren't getting a, a ton of high-value uh, high shots off, um, at least not to the degree, degree that we would hope and not to the degree that they did in the first three games under under Keefe. One thing I noticed, and this is a very eye-testy thing, um, I felt like the Leafs often got in good positions and then tried to like do this 2002-era mixtape of like Joga Benito trying to walk the, the, the puck in while doing like 35 <laughs> flips and some <laughs> shit. Like, like, they tried to be very fancy and get, you know, maybe make one play too many. And... Mm-hmm. I'm hesitant to to really criticize them about this in a meaningful way or, or say that this is not necessarily optimal because, let's be real, John Tavares, Austin Matthews, William Nylander, they know better than me what to do in those positions, right? They have long careers, or at least well, in the case of Matthews and Nylander, they have short but excellent careers in terms of generating offense and generating high-value chances. But when it do- when it's not working over the course of a night... At some point, you're like, just fucking shoot, <laughs> right? Where, when you have the puck in a decent yes. area and mm-hmm. you could maybe make a, a 5% pass that would turn it into a guaranteed goal, or you could just shoot and then, you know, maybe something good happens from there. Now, again, if you can't take that to an extreme, right? Because if you do that, then you end up with um, what the Leafs were <laughs> for the first, you know, month of the year <laughs> where they were just shooting from everywhere and they weren't getting any high-quality chances. But it's very frustrating when you see a team get into good positions and then not even get a shot away. Yeah, it's worth noting. So in the game last night, the Leafs had the better of the shot differentials. They very much did not in expected goals, and that was exactly what was happening during the, the low points of the late Babcock era. And... I don't think that that's going to continue going forward. I hope. I think Sheldon Keefe has made genuine improvements. I think he deserves credit for that. At the same time, I think that there is a real desire on the part of everybody to absolutely turn the page on the Babcock era, which is totally understandable. Um, I don't want to spend every episode talking about him now that he's gone, but... Let me put it this way. I'm not lamenting his departure. <laughs> uh, I gave him too much credit. But at the same time, this team still has the same players. And a lot of those tendencies, one, I think, are on the players to fix. And two, are going to take a long time to improve on if you're Sheldon Keith, Or may be kind of fixed. You know, he can't turn something into something it's not entirely the defensive execution is still kind of bad and whatever it is we still have a very high coursey team and the expected goals are a little iffy so i'm hoping to see more what we saw in the first three keith games where it was like quality chances in addition to quantity 
but they were generating a lot there that may be tough to sustain. Yeah, no. So I, I, we're still in the wait and see. Yeah, for sure, know? for sure. It's it's still wait and see. Five games is not nearly enough time to, um, to really ascertain anything with a with a high degree of confidence. And I mean, you could put it another way: if we if you change the order of these five games and you put the the two Buffalo games like second and fourth, and then the three really strong games mm-hmm. around them, like we'd probably be talking in a bit more positive a way. It's natural for us to kind of read read order and read structure into the way that games occurred, even though there might not necessarily have to be a dependence, right? So, you know, on the whole, like, the, the results under Keefe are still positive. There's no reason to look at the last two games to the exclusion of the first three. Um, that said, this was a five-game stretch in the schedule that was, I don't think can be argued to be anything besides weak teams. The only team that I would say is a possible contender in that group is Colorado, and they were without two-thirds of their top line. Mm-hmm. So, you know, th- this, we, sh- we should have done very well against this, and, and, and we ha- if we truly have aspirations of being a good playoff team as opposed to a bubble team. Yeah, and it's worth noting, you know, the Leafs are still on the bubble. If they get, you know, eight points every five games as they didn't uh, have done so far under Keith, they're going to be fine. But that's hard to do. <laughs> and it's going to be a dogfight, probably. And that's just how it is. Um, you know, we, we ran through whatever margin we may have had, and now we have to play like a genuinely good team because we have to get an above-average number of points. Right now, they're sitting in third in the Atlantic, but almost everyone has at least one game in hand on them. Uh the Lightning have four, and that's to make up three points. So, like, I think we can expect the Lightning are going to pass us. Uh, yeah, we're really so, fighting with know, Montreal, it's, it's be tough. Buffalo, and Florida for that third Atlantic spot, I think. Yeah, and realistically, we should be better than all of those teams. But we haven't been, and now we're kind of paying the piper. Um, and also, Florida is getting just ghastly goaltending out of Sergei Bobrovsky. But they're committed to him. So they're going to keep giving him chances. Well, I think they're they, and, they're benching him now. I know I know Reimer played, um, or not Reimer. They had some some random dude who shut out Nashville last night. Um, yeah, but like I have to think on a going forward basis, they're going to do it because like what are they going to do? Like actively shelve him in the first year of a seven year deal? You know, true. Like true. I mean, he's going to play more for them. Yeah, hopefully he continues to implode. Um, no offense, Sergey. You seem like a cool guy, but we need to make the playoffs. He does, yeah. But we we do wish massive professional failure on you. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I I mean that's kind of where it's at, and I'm I'm trying to strike a balance here where I'm saying it was probably past time to fire Mike Babcock. Oh yeah, yeah. Sheldon Keefe seems to be doing some good things. Uh, there are some encouraging trends, mm-hmm. and I think. I think it's an aside, you know, I spoke last week about the convenience of kind of drawing a bright line in history where you just get to say, okay, that was the past. There was a reason for that. That wasn't my fault. I can come back and be rejuvenated and play better. And, you know, like psychologically, I can excuse my previous conduct. I think that that is deliberate on the part of how this organization is going. And I'm thinking of things like this quote. Uh, This is uh, transcribed by TSN reporter Kristen Shilton. Uh, The Leafs 
penalty kill has been perfect, two for two on back-to-back nights. Sheldon Keefe said he's leaning on Dave Haxtell, the assistant coach there. Quote, there have been different things that he's been wanting to do or wanting to adjust, wanting to change, and we kind of supported him in that. I don't think you can read that as anything but a shot at Mike Babcock. Yeah. That seems really obvious to me. These are getting less and less and, pointed. Or, or sorry, sorry, less and less subtle, I should say. Yeah. Like, more and more, like, quite explicitly. And that's Keefe. And Keefe is not a stupid guy or an inexperienced coach, even though this is his first time at the NHL. If he wanted to avoid that seeming like a shot, he could have done it. And that's true of the organization as a whole. I think the internal song in the least right now is Ding Dong, The Witch is Dead still. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's very understandable. It's just at the same time as people who were trying to analyze it, we have to say, okay, we're still the same team. You know, we met, we're in, being restructured. Babcock was not getting the best out of this team. He was probably holding them back to some extent. They're happy to see him gone. But, like, you know, not everything is going to be fixed. And I hate to sound like a buzzkill, but I think a lot of people want us to say Keith is going to be able to fix everything. And I don't know. Yeah, I mean, well, that, that, <laughs> I that's true. That we, we, don't, that we don't know, right? Um, I'll do a Bob Cole mm. voice if I, if I had any ability to do impressions. Um <laughs> but yeah, we, we don't know what the results really are are going to be under Keith. It's just the the early indications are that I, I, I generally do like a lot of the changes he's made as we as we alluded to before. Um, but you start to wonder if the the roster is just not good enough or, or something about the players is not good enough, especially defensively because you know I think it's it's an unrealistic standard to hold. Keith to to expect him to be like okay well yeah you should make these guys good defensively now I don't think you can get like Morgan Riley who's coached by Scotty Bowman Joel Quenville Jesus Christ and Ganesh and I don't think he would be good defensively mm-hmm. right like I, I I mean can they be better I god I hope so but like you know <laughs> this is the team that we have yeah and... so so to some extent like Keith just has to deal with the hand that he's he's been dealt I suppose and you know make the best of it um if we can get any kind of you know positive regression in terms of how how bad we are defensively that would be phenomenal but i don't think we can expect it and certainly in the first couple games um or during the last two games rather under keith like we haven't looked good in our own zone right and most teams don't no um but the leafs have our special level of incompetent in their own in their own zone it's quite troublesome to see and I think, I mean, at a certain point, yeah, that, that is just on the players, right? Like, I, I, I don't, I don't yeah. think Babcock was instructing them to be bad in their own zone. I don't think Keefe is instructing them to be bad in their own zone. I just think that's a hard problem to fix, and that's, that's innate. People talk about the Leafs as a very talented roster, and they are, but they're very talented in a very specific way, right? And I think we, we mm-hmm. underrate— And for what it's worth—yeah, sorry, go ahead. I think we underrate that defensive talent as a thing, and we just don't have a ton of it. Yeah. Uh, it is worth noting, and I, I have to say in fairness to Keith, this is one of the best things that he's done, is he's set up the forwards to sustain pressure mm-hmm. in the opposing zone with that third forward high. I think that's been positive. Teams are going to expect it more. You know, you get scouted like anything else. But I think that the Leafs have the personnel to deploy that effectively, and it's actually made them a little bit more of a cycle team 
offensively, which is very interesting. I always thought we were kind of a rush team at the peak of the Babcock years, and we were good at it, but it didn't lead to a lot of sustained pressure. And so I am encouraged by that, notwithstanding, you know, we've had some, some rough goes in Buffalo. But the defensive thing concerns me. And uh, my understanding of it, and, and I'm relying a little bit on Justin Bourne here, uh, he's talking about things that um, Keith is possibly going to be imposing. Uh, there's sort of like an overload system, apparently, where they have a lot of guys kind of swarm the puck carrier down low in the defensive zone and basically just try to make it very hard for those guys to move. I don't know if that's being imposed in a large-scale way. I have to admit, I'm often not seeing it, so I don't know if if that's happening, if it's in progress, if there's just a disconnect, if this is the learning curve, what have you. It does sound quite similar but to, I'm the, still seeing... to the swarm technique that, um, was that what Randy Carlisle used? Oh, Where God. our wingers would come really <laughs> low in the defensive zone. And look, there's obviously way more nuance to it than this. So like, this is not me saying, oh, Keith's instituting the same system that, you know, noted idiot Randy Carlisle has done. It's not that. Um, but I remember under Carlisle, our wingers would come super low in the zone. And then we'd have this like accordion thing where like the other team would basically just pass it back uncontested to the points. Our wingers would have to go up high to contest them. And then uh, the puck would just get immediately bypassed. Uh, it would immediately bypass those wingers as the defenders would either shoot it or send it in. And the idea behind that is, I guess, similar to the idea behind what Keith is trying to do, and that's to um, cut off high danger chances, cut off the middle of the ice. And other teams use a similar technique to, you know, effectiveness, to some effectiveness. Um, Carolina, or not Carolina, uh, the Islanders and the Bruins both use somewhat similar um, schemes or somewhat similar principles so I, I do think, you know, there's a lot that goes on in the execution of this as opposed to just the idea. Um, but yeah, yeah it, it, it's, it's not... And again, it, I have to say, yeah. It's not like some ridiculously novel and unique idea that, that Keefe has done, like inventing hockey with sticks. <laughs> but he doesn't get enough credit for that one. Yeah, it, it's, it's true. And I have to say, in fairness, however good or however bad these five games had gone... I would still be kind of saying wait and see. Yes. Because it's five games. He's only had like eh, 10 days to, a little more than 10 days, coming up on two weeks, to impose his vision on the roster. And that's not enough time, especially in season, where you have a limited number of full practices. Uh, and I think, you know, you have to say, on the whole, they've been better. One, they've been winning. But two, they've actually played better. Yes. So that is good. That is encouraging. Um the keep the shots to the outside thing, which is how this is described, it's how Jason Spezza described it in an interview. Uh, that's always a nice principle. It seems like a good thing to do. You don't want shots inside. You'd like to just keep them to the outside if you can. But uh, as you've said, you know, I've heard that describing very good teams and very bad teams. Right, you know, right. Randy Carlisle. No, no one's making a system saying, yeah, we want to let know. them shoot from in front of the net. I think that's or the real key to yeah. our success <laughs> is making sure they get really, really good shots against us. Right, everyone's trying to keep them to the outside. Um, where I think the problem arises is that when the Leafs get inside their own zone, you know, so there's always there's these extended cycle shifts that happen against us. And in a lot of cases, I think commentators overrate this. Where a team will have a 30 second, one minute shift in the offensive zone, where they just rim the puck around the boards five times and take a deflected point shot, and then Jim Houston be like, "Oh, this is a dominant shift by whoever." 
Uh, it's like you generated the literally nothing. <laughs> right? That yeah. said, I think the Leafs, perhaps more than other teams, once you get them moving in their own zone, there are failures to communicate. There are breakdowns, especially when one player has to cover for another, when players have to move around um, and, mm-hmm. you know, change positions. I think we we struggle in that, and then that eventually does open up holes closer to the net that can be taken advantage of. And to be, I think this is part of the reason why Keith likes to have his um, the third forward pop up high in the offensive zone to create those same issues for defensemen, where someone has to make the call: Do I go with that forward? Like it's Austin Matthews; he's dangerous there, mm-hmm. but he's far enough away that it's not super dangerous. It's not imminent, so it creates this ambiguity of: Oh, what should I do here? Um, and then if someone rotates, then there has to be, you know, like an NBA defense, there has to be rotations to uh, account for that. There has to be movement and everyone has to um, work together, right? And when you induce mm-hmm. chaos in that way, you create the opportunity for mistakes. So it, it's the same principle that he's trying to incorporate in the offensive side. But I think the Leafs are, are really, really bad at that defensively. Um, and that, that's just a function, I think, of the personnel that they have. And that isn't really going to change. And, and to be fair to Keefe again, that's something we saw under Babcock too, right? Like, it's not like we were a great defensive team under Babcock and now we're sacrificing Forever. defense for offense. We're, the results have been better, right? Yeah. I, I want to make sure that we don't seem like we're coming off as too pessimistic. The results have been better, and I think generally we're encouraged. It's just Keefe isn't going to make this leopard change their spots entirely. Mm-hmm. And no one can. Exactly. You know, we're not holding to a standard where he has to. We're just trying to live in a reality where that's what it is. You know, yes. that's something that we have to adapt to. But yeah, I mean, the biggest point, and this is, you know, standard hockey procedure really, is that to beat a modern defense, you have to make them make mistakes. You have to apply pressure where they're not expecting it. You have to draw them out of position. You have to rush them so that they make decisions that are hurried, incomplete, bad, leave openings, uh, make exposures. That third forward high, as you were talking about, seems like a good way to do that. What happened to the Leafs on the one goal they allowed last night, and if you think that we're being a bit unkind by only describing one, (laughs) by describing the defense as being poor after a night where they only allowed one goal, that's all Freddie Anderson. Like He He had a brilliant game. Absolutely brilliant game. He was terrific. And God bless him. Uh, you really appreciate that. But the goal against, scored by, again, noted friend of the blog, Rasmus Ristolainen, was the Leafs were kind of discombobulated in the defensive zone. One, Riley and CeCe were reversed. I originally thought that Morgan Riley just got five miles out of position, but looking back at it, he's playing the right side. He's actually defending the B- Buffalo Sabres winger, as he comes back up the boards. And so CeCe is in front of the net, and so we have Riley on the right, CeCe in the center, nobody on the left. That's a problem. And Rasmus Ristolainen was playing right defense, so his right are left. Uh, Ristolainen just walks down. He's being chased by Ilya Mikhaev, who is trying to stop him and who can't catch him. John Tavares looks at Ristolainen, looks back at the guy in front of him, decides, I guess... That i got to take the guy who's in front of me. I don't want to leave him open for a pass. I don't want to get too chasey. Maybe that makes sense. But a combination of the two defensemen leaving the left side open. And Mikhaev not being able to catch him. And Tavares being stuck on the other guy. Means Ristolainen just walks in and scores. 
and everyone looks kind of stupid. Mm. This is, I this is probably something every really fan wonder... thinks. But the, I feel like mm-hmm. the Leafs lead the league in goals where they just look very stupid. Goals against. <laughs> My heart tells me it's true, even if there's absolutely no way of verifying that. Uh, and again, that's not to like uh, get too carried away. And you absolutely run the risk of big mistaking everybody when you have that one awful goal mm-hmm. leads to a goal against. Uh, Cody CC. <laughs> I feel like we have to keep saying this because I don't actually believe it in my heart no matter how many times that I say it. His numbers aren't that bad, you know, for the year. Yeah, it, it's it's uh, kind of kind of fine. It's kind of shocking, actually, where <laughs> he and Riley together have like a 51% Corsi and like 50% expected goals. Now, that's not great, but I mean, if you turn on Leafs Twitter during a random game, um, you would not think that he has those numbers. You would think that he is, you know... 25% expected goals, that he's using his stick the wrong way, that he's wearing his skates on his hands. Um, so, yeah, it is, it, it's genuinely surprising. Because when I watch CC and Riley play, I'm like, oh, God, these guys, they look like shit. But then, you know, as I said, the results, 51.5% Corsi 4 percentage, uh, 50% expected goals. And they're not getting PDO. Their goals 4 percentage is 51% as well. Right? It's just... Mm-hmm. They... I think this is something I'm guilty of. I'm definitely guilty of big mistaking CC, And in my defense, I feel he does make big mistakes often. Um, or, yeah, he, or at least um, notable I gaps. I don't think that that just happens. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. on the whole, the numbers actually have not been um, that bad. The, the, one of the interesting things is, uh, so away from CC, Riley's numbers jump dramatically. I'm guessing that's because... Mm-hmm. In most of the shifts that he has away from CC, it's offensive zone starts with either Barry or Dermot. Um, so I, I wouldn't read that heavily into that particular um, on-off split. We we actually we were talking um, before we we went before we started recording about how they've done with various Leafs forwards, and, and basically what it comes down to is that CC and Riley have done very well with Austin Matthews, and very poorly with. John Tavares, or whoever the second line has been, because Tavares has obviously spent some time out. And that's mm-hmm. basically, you know, the the breakdown of their, their results. They don't spend that much time with the Leafs' bottom six players. So it's really the, the, the primary factors are, how are, they, how are they doing with the Matthews line? How are they doing with the Tavares line? And it's, in this case, very well in the first and very poorly in the second. And that's also confused by the fact that the Tavares line, I think, tends to face slightly tougher com- uh, competition, at least in terms of uh, forwards. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, that's that's essentially how their results are breaking down right now. Yeah. And, you know, regarding the eye test with CC thing, the expression he handles the puck like a grenade gets tossed around a lot, and it's applied to Martin Marincin, who we have to say, in fairness, sometimes deserves it. CC handles the puck more like a grenade than anyone I've ever seen at the NHL level. Like, he gets it, and it is a five-alarm fire every single time. And, you know, maybe he makes the right play, but maybe he panics and is like, here, and throws it in the slot or something like that. And that is what drives you bananas. Jake Gardner sometimes did this, but Jake Gardner would also sometimes deploy like the A++ play that you didn't even think was possible based on his skating or his vision or whatever. And you would be like, okay, well on net, he's pretty good. But yeah, I I do think that that really colors my perception of Cody Cece. And also, let's be honest, I think that there's maybe an issue, especially in the stats community, 
of like memeable defensemen who have like comically awful results results excuse me in bad usage and so you've got guys like Cody Ceci and Dan Girardi and Eric Goodbranson and Rasmus Ristolainen and I think we've seen a couple of them now put up somewhat better number results when they got out of those awful situations but it still kind of colors your thinking that you know you saw this guy getting butchered in every possible statistic for several years at a time and you made fun of him so yeah that's my little ordeal of Cody Cece and my efforts to try and see him straight as opposed to skewing my perspective yeah it's he had a couple I mean yesterday notwithstanding you know kind of the general results we've talked about yesterday I think was genuinely quite poor from him and Mm -hmm. Riley I, I don't have the numbers in front of me but it felt like they were getting snowed in and CZ in particular, CZ and Riley had this brutal sequence where Riley goes back to retrieve a puck that's been dumped in and it hasn't hit the, hasn't passed the goal line yet. He kind of centers it to CZ, um, which is probably not a great decision, but also that's a pass that CZ should be able to handle. CZ, mm-hmm. like, I mean, I would say treats the puck like a grenade, but it, more accurately, he treats the puck as if his hands have just been hit by shrapnel. <laughs> Um, and just barfs it up, and the Sabres get a couple really good chances and start um, an extended uh, zone time sequence. And it's like, stuff like that just looks visually awful. And, you know, we've talked a lot about Riley's play this year and how he's looked pretty poor. And, again, this is something that is more backed up by the eye test than the numbers. Because if you look at his numbers, even his play-driving numbers, like RIPM and Threat, they're actually better this year than they were last year, or they're around the same. Um, mm-hmm. Now, last year, of course, Riley had a heap load. Uh, is that a word? A heap load. A heap of individual points, and I... that always colors your perception of players. <laughs> um, the year before... Yeah, but he's on pace for like 60-odd points this year. Yeah. Like, it's not actually it's that, not that far bad. off, even. And uh, yeah. it's not like he's getting snowed in from a, a PDO perspective, either. Or we're just seeing him on the ice for a lot of goals against... I think a lot of it is just he's scoring individually less. Like, his individual goals mm-hmm. are, are much lower. Uh, and that always colors our perception. But, yeah, with with Riley, I, I, I've been on the train of, you know, he hasn't looked right this year. The numbers are actually not, sadly, not that different from previous years. So either we say something's missing there, or he he was never that good and we were being blinded by his individual um offensive brilliance and i mean i think to be fair to us we've, we've always kind of pointed out that riley is a bit of you know a, a type of defenseman who can get overrated as you know an elite offensive mm-hmm. producing defenseman who doesn't necessarily have great results when his team is on the ice yeah and so you know uh i i don't know what i think of, of riley there i i share the concern i've said before i think he's nursing some kind of injury he doesn't look like himself, and yet I do also wonder sometimes how much of it is just CC maybe being in the wrong place or something, and Riley trying to cover for him, and maybe that's why he looks as chasey as he does. He looks to me like he's chasing the play a lot defensively. So do many other Leafs. So it's a bit too... It's always tough to puzzle out exactly how these things are going and that's why we rely on numbers to try and correct our eye test and what we're seeing yeah and i mean the um, the main thing my, I'm... my eye test is really at odds here with the numbers yeah so. i think if you look at the numbers basically yeah. the big the big difference between riley this year and riley last year 
is Ronnie last year was um, had a ridiculously high on a shooting percentage and was like plus a billion mm-hmm. as a result. And this year he is yep. not. This year he's been like average mm-hmm. in that regard. Um, so, you know, you'd like to think that we we see past those sorts of things, but I've I've definitely thought, oh man, Roddy looks just weird and poor this year. And based on you know the actual record of what's happened when he's on the ice in terms of shots in terms of expected goals really hasn't been that different to uh 18 19 interestingly so riley's best year and i've, I've made this point before that riley's best year was actually 2017 2018 and that's the one year where he had like a ridiculously strong offensive impact without giving everything back defensively mm-hmm. um and in that year he, he didn't get the you know the fortune of the pdo gods but I thought he, he was playing very, very, very well. And I was super excited because I'm like, okay, he's, he's making the leap. And then the last two years have kind of, or last year and a bit, I suppose, has made me think, okay, maybe that was, that was a bit of a false dawn. And he is, he is the guy he was projecting to be before that, right? Which is mm-hmm. a very good and useful player. But, you know, more and more, I, I do think that Riley should not be the, and it probably cannot be the best defenseman on a championship team. Yes, and the unfortunate thing is right now, it's hard to see it otherwise. I mean, Jake Muzzin has been better in a lot of ways this year. But I think you can debate who the best defenseman on the team is. It's probably still Riley, I guess, in terms of talent. Mm-hmm. It's, it ain't a murderer's row. Like, let's be real. You, you know, these, yeah, this and, is and, not a defensive stalwart. And the obvious retort is, you know, the, the year the Penguins won with Ron Haynes. He's the number one defenseman. And it's like... I mean, we're talking about probabilities here, right? When I say cannot be the number yeah. one defenseman on a championship team, I should clarify that to be it is not likely that a championship team can win if Morgan Riley is their best defenseman, right? Like, weird mm-hmm. things happen. It's hockey. But it, it's it definitely is, um, you know, he, he's, not, he's not in that elite tier of defensemen if you look at anything besides just points. Yeah, right, because and, he is, and even then, it's yeah, like, because you he know. is so bad defensively. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, I mean, I guess that's just something that we have to live with. But yeah, I mean, the, yeah, the the comparison for Riley, I think, when early in his career, was like, okay, maybe he can be Chris Letang, and I think people don't realize mm-hmm. how good Chris Letang is. Where Letang, he's is, never going to get as much credit as he deserves. Yeah, Letang has the elite offensive impact that that Riley does, but he's actually pretty okay defensively um certainly far far better mm-hmm. than riley is and when you combine the two you actually get someone who is one of the best defensemen in the world um riley isn't that and doesn't aside from that one year in 17 18 where it looked like he might have that defensive impact and he, he's never really um shown any signs of defensive competence and at this point you know he is who he is so that that's just the reality of it yeah, and, you know, we'll have to, to deal with that. All of this is, you know, it's fine. We're kind of, as we've said before, committed to Riley, except, ooh, that next contract is going to be something. Yeah. So we'll see. It's, it's, it's quite <laughs> interesting because I'm not sure I want to commit long-term money to Morgan Riley as he ages out of his prime, and especially because he's going to be the type of defenseman that gets a lot of money. I've mentioned this before in the context of um, of Travis Dermott. But there are essentially mm-hmm. two things that get defensemen paid. Points and time on ice. Riley gets both of them. 
Mm-hmm. So that's not like an ideal situation, especially if you think that his points overrate his his, his true ability. Um, and I, I think we're kind of both on the, the bandwagon of points are not incredibly important for a defenseman. And you, you can even question for forwards, mm-hmm. as many you know hockey analysts have, their, their utility. But certainly for defensemen, they're, they're nowhere near the most important thing. But they are still a huge factor in how people get paid. Yeah. See, even, even so, more so... I, I don't know. I... Sorry, even more so than, than CeCe's kind of confusing uh, dissonance between the eye test and, and the numbers, Riley's is perhaps even more important because, one, he, he does look like he's struggling right now, even though the numbers are uh, in line with what he's typically done. But what, what he's typically done is also probably not worthy of the contract he's going to get in a, in a couple years and probably not worthy of the importance that he's going to have to this team, right? And does that put a cap on how good we can be or how good we're likely to be? Yeah, and it's worth noting, with the amount of money that we've committed to our forwards, I don't think that we're really in a position where we can make too many more overpays and survive it. Mm -hmm. You know, I think as it is, we can operate, but we got to get smart now, and we've got to get a little bit more financially conservative than we have been. Yeah. And there is going to be a really tough decision about Freddie Anderson Mm -hmm. that is probably more critical and it will be more understandable i think if we overpay him even though that's a really fraught choice because without good starting goaltending you're dead yes and this team won't survive without it and so if we don't have a replacement we may not have a choice but especially if you commit to paying freddie anderson quite a bit of money into his 30s then you really can't get stupid about your defenseman, and that means you really have to be honest about how good Morgan Riley is. And I'm not sure in my own mind of that, but I am pretty concerned as to how fraught that decision is. That's dangerous. Yeah, I mean, so, we, we, yeah. we we touched on, oh, it's going to be quite difficult to get a backup uh, for a couple reasons. One of them is we have no cap room, right? And, I mean, that, nope. that's something Dubas has to own to a degree. Um Certainly, he was constrained with uh, a couple pretty poor deals uh, that were certainly not his fault in Marlowe and Zaitsev. And I think, by and large, he did what he had to do to get off those. Um, the CC acquisition was the, the cost of getting rid of Zaitsev's deal. I'd much rather have CC than Zaitsev, uh, just because of their contracts. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. you know, he. We, we, I guess we harp on this every time. But, yeah, the, the Marner deal looks bad. It, it, it just is. Um. And yeah, I don't know like how many more ways we can say that. It's it's a bad contract. Yeah, it's so, about and you know I think I, I'd love to not you know always talk about it, but it you know it burns us again and again. We're looking for two million and we don't have it. So yeah. we're looking for two hundred thousand. <laughs> we don't have it, and the same is true of um, giving Cody Cece four point five million instead of just saying hey take your qualifying offer. Right. So I would. Yeah, that, that's the thing. It's like, I cut it slack and I was like, oh, it's 200K. And then, of course, oh, it's 200K. And we actually need that. I would be really curious to give Kyle Dubas some truth serum sometime and ask him how he thought this was going to play out from where he was sitting in June to how things ended up. I can't imagine that he was happy with this resolution. And I do remember James Myrtle reporting that the front office felt like they'd basically been defeated in the Martin negotiation as well. They should have. And and so, 
yeah, you know, we, we have some problems here. It's still, you know, the bottom line is it still should be a good team in personnel. Mm -hmm. But his hands are a little bit tied here. And, you know, that's a concern. It is. So, Okay, cool. So um, yeah. you had a bad take you wanted to talk about as well, didn't you? Yeah, and you know what? This is inspired a little bit by Kelly Hrudy, but one, I don't want to drill too specifically in on his comments so much as to get mad at a lot of things in general, but I'm going to just charge ahead. Uh, William Nylander was described as enigmatic. Enigmatic is one of the dumbest words in hockey commentary, and it means usually that this player is too European, that he is a scoring forward, and that sometimes he doesn't score. Now, <laughs> pretty much all players who aren't Alex Ovechkin, sometimes don't score because goals are hard and you often just have that happen. Um, they get described as streaky or whatever it is, as if that's not true of everyone who isn't an absolute superstar in scoring all the time anyway. Uh, William Nylander is not really that enigmatic, though. There's not that much to understand. He's a really good player playing with an even better player as his center. He's been good pretty much his whole career except for two months after he signed his contract where he was clearly coming back a step slow behind the league. And people say, oh, well, that was a lost season. Eh, hang on a second. After the first couple of months, William Nylander was fine. He was producing five on five. He was on a second power play unit. That was him and Jake Gardner and three guys with their dicks in their hands. And so I'm not super surprised that he didn't rack up the numbers on that one. But... By and large, he's a good player. Lines that he is on succeed. They drive play. They get the better of the scoring chances. He is on a line now that has been, even in the year where a lot of the rest of the team was hit and miss, that line is dominating. That line has been good top to bottom. And the most encouraging thing about that team has been that Janssen, Matthews, Nylander looks like a line that can be the best line on a championship team. I do not get this reluctance to give him some kind of appropriate credit. And I don't know if it's just because the Etobicoke uncles think that he's too blonde and too pretty and they think that he's not very tough and he's a perimeter player. Look, I get it. He's not, uh, I don't know, your Bo Ideal of a power forward. He's not prime Wayne Simmons or something like that. But you have to appreciate him for what he is. And I have to admit, I'm out of patience with trying to politely explain to people that it's good to have someone who is really good at driving play, really good at transitioning the puck, really good at passing, and has even, finally, started having the puck go in for him. I just am done with all this shit, you know? And I know that Nylander is like a battleground, and for the record, you can criticize him. We did. We had an episode a couple of weeks back where we talked about a flyby that he did, and we said, that wasn't very good. Mike Babcock benched him for him for that for a little bit, and that was fine. But we also have to look at his value, and if you're just coming around now and saying, oh, it looks like something has changed, all that's changed is shooting percentage. Yeah. So that is my rant about William Nylander. Pay attention, motherfuckers. That's my bottom line. The talk of Nylander being divisive, it to me, it's like, on a far less serious level, right? It, it, it reminds me of something like the talk about, you know, some racist comment being, you know, 
insensitive or racially charged or a divisive comment as if, you know, the two sides of people saying, hey, that's racist and hey, that's not racist are given the same weight. This is obviously mm. way less important. But the idea is essentially mm. like, you know, the, yes, he's divisive, by which we mean there are some people who like him and there are some people who are wrong. <laughs> right? There's some people who think he's a good player. And there's yeah, some people controversy who abounds. Who are just idiots. It's like, it's like, oh, climate change is a divisive topic. Well, it shouldn't be. Vaccines are a divisive topic, <laughs> and it shouldn't be. Right? There, there are people who, like, understand shit, and there's idiots. And we don't need to <laughs> constantly cater to the idiots and say, oh, he's a divisive player. You got to look at all this. And it's like, no, he is a good but flawed player. We can discuss his flaws honestly without mentioning every time. It's like, this is why people don't like him. It's like, you know, it, it, the, the onus should be on the dumbasses to stop being dumbasses, basically. <laughs> yeah, like, and I feel that I don't like you know, being dismissive at that point, but I have to admit my patience ran out. Sorry. You know, we had four years where TSN was trying to trade him every other week for just garbage, just bad defensemen and extremely questionable players because they were supposedly grittier or tougher or some nonsense like that. Sometimes you just have to know a good thing when you have it and not for nothing. It's the best value deal of the big three. Hey, how about that? You know, I, I just, I, I like, I really think that we do try, you know, to be receptive, to adopt new views, to be open to changing our minds or something. But after a while, it feels like you're hitting your head against a wall. And there is an element of this fan base of hockey in general that wants players that just, you know, make your dick feel bigger or something like that. Like, it's just this big, you know, like, I want this tough manly power forward or something like that. And it's like, that's terrific. But you've got to have a deeper evaluation of the player than that, of the game than that. And so I, I guess after the millionth round of this, I've just kind of snapped on the word enigmatic because I feel like enigmatic means something that is hard to understand. In the case of William Nylander, I think a lot of people have not tried to understand it. Yeah. And so it's kind of willful ignorance. Yeah, I, I agree. It's it's, anyway. it's frustrating to to see that. And it's also you know there's also people coming around and being like, oh, he's been so much different this year than last year. And it's like, no, the difference is you're an, you were an idiot last year who could only look at goals, and now you're an idiot this year who sees that he's scoring, and now things are suddenly all different. Like, the most annoying thing in the world to me is people going like, oh, he's finally going to the net. No, he always fucking went to the net. His, his expected <laughs> shooting percentage was higher than Nassim Kadri's last year. It's higher than Mitch Marner's, right? Like, yeah. he, he's not he's not JVR. He's not John Tavares. But the idea that he's a soft perimeter floater has never been borne out by the data. And it's never been borne out, especially in the fact that, more importantly than where he shoots from, his teams always shoot from good areas of the ice when he's on the ice, right? Because he's mm-hmm. a really, really good player. So, anyways... This is our typical five minutes of William Nylander standing. Um, <laughs> I think that pretty much wraps it up, though, right? Uh, that's everything that I had now okay. that I've vented my spin. I, I just, I suppose I want to put a cap on this yeah. and say, notwithstanding we've observed some problems, I didn't think the last two games in Buffalo were all that impressive, especially after the first period of the first one. Yeah. But the trends have been good. The team looks better than they did. They won four out of five. That's something. 
So I hope that as much as we've spent a lot of time focusing on the problems, as is our want, uh, I hope that it's clear that we are still encouraged by some of these changes. Yes. I mean, it, it, it's been more positive than negative since Keith took charge, I think. And, you know, just from even just intuitively, I think some of the changes he's making are good common sense changes, and I'm, and I'm glad he's making them. So, you know, I, I am more optimistic now than I was 10 days ago. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, we're not going to suddenly like, flip a switch and become the 97 Red Wings or, or whatever. Yeah. So, that's life. Um, but, you know, we'll still be we'll still be cheering for the team. We'll, at the end of the day, we, we, still do have, eh, we still do have a good team. And if we can... Um, if we can sort out the backup situation, we should have a good shot at the playoffs and potentially making a bit of noise when we get there. Mm-hmm. All right, cool. So you can find all of mine and Fuleman's work at pensionplanpuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RV and AT Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week.